Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library. I'm your host, Jim Ambusky. Today, we're delighted to bring you part two of my talk with Mary Thompson, the library's research historian about her new book, The Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret, George Washington's Slavery and the Enslaved Community at Mount Vernon. On last week's episode, Mary and I discussed the origins of her project, how interpretations of slavery have changed at Mount Vernon over time, and Washington as a slave owner. If you haven't listened to it yet, I highly encourage you to do so. Today, we explore the enslaved community at Mount Vernon in greater detail. We'll learn more about the lives of the people held in bondage by the Washington family and Washington's conflicted feelings about slavery near the end of his life. We'll also dive into what happened to the enslaved men, women, and children at Mount Vernon in the years after Washington's death. Just as a reminder, if you'd like to purchase your own copy of Mary's book, be sure to check out the link posted on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org backslash podcast. Thanks for listening. So, Mary, we left off last week uh, kind of right at the cusp of the revolution. You know, we talked a lot about Washington as a slaveholder and, and slavery in Virginia in general. I was wondering if we could spend time today diving into the enslaved community here at Mount Vernon. Uh, and so, you know, who were the people that the Washingtons held in bondage here? What, what do we know about their lives? There were a combination of people. Um, at the end of Washington's life, there were 123 people that he owned. Um, there were 153 people who belonged to the estate of Martha Washington's first husband, Daniel Park Custis, and there were 41 people who were rented from 40 from a neighbor and one from a, a relative by marriage. Um, and, and they had sort of, they come from different places. The Custis Dower slaves, uh, had, the, the Custises had, uh, Dan, Daniel, Martha's first husband, had inherited um, a large number of slaves, and he was the only surviving child in his family. Mm-hmm. So when his father died, he got all of them. And so he didn't have to buy people. So the Custis slaves had been in Virginia for a very, very long time. There were multi-generational families. Um, George Washington's slaves were, you know, he started off inheriting 10 when he was 11 years old at the time of his father's death. And then um, he gradually, as, as an adult, added people by going to sales in um, a lot of different communities when he would hear that somebody died and they were selling off the Mm -hmm. slaves. And then he also bought people directly from slave ships from Africa. So um, there's a combination of of people and uh, groups and... (laughs) Yeah, so so we have, uh, it sounds like... Uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the majority of, of the enslaved people here were likely American-born then. Uh, Definitely by the end of his life, by, yes. By the end of mm-hmm. his life. Do we, do we have a sense of how many people Washington purchased from the transatlantic slave trade then? Not, not really. Mm-hmm. But, but we know that some of them were mm-hmm. purchased from slaving ships and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the big things that's really interesting about um, 
studies with slavery is the ways in which we know much more about how enslaved peoples recreated a sense of community uh, and appropriated different form cultural forms, uh, either that they you know, adopted in uh, the place where they grew up or brought with them uh, through the Middle Passage uh, and and some of the cultural aspects survives that, that, that terrible experience. Do we have a sense of, of how uh, the enslavement Mountain Vernon created a sense of community and, and was a product of, of what historians call you know, a kind of a Creole culture, a, a mixing of cultures to create something new? There were, um, there were a few hints. <laughs> hmm. So um, as far as religion was concerned, um, there, there's evidence for African tribal religions, uh, a few slaves who were Muslim, which is typical. Mm-hmm. There were somewhere um, about you know 15 to 20 percent of the slaves who came to the to North America were thought to have been Muslim, mm-hmm. and um, by the late late in Washington's lifetime, the estimate is that something like 4% of the slaves had converted to Christianity. Christianity. Uh, so there's a, a mix. And maybe even in, in one person's, in one individual might be practicing bits and pieces of all those different things. We just, we don't really know. Um, How do we know what we know? Because um, it's fascinating stuff. And so I'm curious to know, you know, uh, what are you able to glean from the sources that leads to those conclusions? There are um, it, a, a lot. Com- the Muslim slaves we've managed to come at from name information. Um, so when someone is has a, you know has an Arabic name. Mm-hmm or is from one of the people groups. You know, uh, Sambo Anderson, the carpenter, is, is is a good example of this. His name is is probably Hausa or Fulani, and both those groups had several hundred years of Muslim uh, interaction with them uh, and had mostly become Muslim. So it, it's a... Oh, wow. A likelihood that, that he was. Um, so it's fascinating. So we can tell the history of someone's life in some sense just by the name that they, that right. they have. Right. Mm-hmm. And there are also, uh, there, there's a, a letter that, that indicates that some of the slaves might have still been using elements of African language besides oh. Arabic. Mm-hmm. Um so Charlotte, who was one of the seamstresses here, um, was sent into Alexandria on an errand and was walking down the street with another uh, black woman um, when the wife of a Scottish merchant came out and accused Charlotte of having a dress that was sto- she of wearing the dress that was stolen from her two years before. Oh, oh. And apparently it was quite a row and Charlotte threatened to flog Mrs. <laughs> McIver. <laughs> and um, 
and she called her the um, you could t- we've got this great letter from Mr. MacGyver writing to George Washington and you can tell she's standing over his shoulder saying now you tell him that she said and um, <laughs> I wish we could reenact that um, <laughs> sometime in Alexandria where in heaven yes she Mrs. MacGyver complained that um Charlotte was very abusive towards her, threatened to flog her, and that she called her Souk. Ah. Now, why? It's it's a short form of Suki, Mm -hmm. you know, which is a name that is used often in the slave quarters, but there were members of the Washington family. It seems to have been a a nickname for Susanna, so they had white servants who worked for them who were called Suki, and um, there were members of the Washington family who were called Suki. So what what about Suk is, um, <laughs> is so yeah. bad. And I started looking for African words that might... Um, or African-American... Vocabulary, looking at some of that, anything that would have rhymed with it mm-hmm. and maybe fit, and it, it looks like it might be a um, Wolof term for behaving badly. Oh, really? Yeah, which then gets comes into English as juke joint, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and. and well, that's right. That kind of thing. So, and, yeah, Wolof, you said, was the, I, I believe the language. Was, mm-hmm. and, and what part of Africa is, is that? Spoken? West Africa. West Africa. Mm-hmm. Wow. So we don't know, you know, a ton about Charlotte's background, but it, it might be that she yelled mm-hmm. something like that. Something like that. <laughs> well, it's really neat, right? Because then it, it shows that we may not have letters from from the enslaved people. We may not have much, you know, beyond the material evidence of their lives, but, you know, linguistics can tell us a whole heck of a lot about you know, who these folks were and and what um, what their experience was like. Mm-hmm. Um, what else stands out to you about the enslaved community here that, that you think people ought to know? People were married, people from Mount Vernon were married to people on other plantations who belonged to other people plantations owned by other people, you know, mm-hmm. just Washingtons. Yeah. And so they're also married to, to free people in the area. And um, so expanding their neighborhood, expanding their community, and would have had opportunities on Sundays. There was a, a market in on Sunday mornings where enslaved people could come in and sell produce and chickens and things like that. And um, but that's also how you got to meet people. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the people from other plantations and swap news and and become friends. And a, another thing to keep in mind is that these slaves came again from different backgrounds mm-hmm. and often from other areas in Virginia and. So they were able to form relationships beyond and, simply the home plantation, right. create these networks. They've got 
relatives and friends on these other places, and which also says that there was probably an opportunity to get together to if you were going to marry somebody who was on another plantation, mm-hmm. you had to meet him somehow. Right. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, there, there's a, a whole sort of underground <laughs> um, network. network there. Yeah. So uh, what, what was would have been the white uh, slave owners' attitudes towards this broadening slave community, this expanded slave community? You know, and I, you know we know in the 1830s, of course, after Nat Turner's rebellion, slavery becomes even more oppressive than it already is, and white owners are much more reluctant to um, allow their slaves the kind of freedom that we see in the 18th century. Um, I guess maybe I just answered my own question, but you know, what, 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 you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, how did Washington think of himself in terms of, of allowing uh, his enslaved people to form these com- uh, connections across space? I don't think he sees a problem with it for the most part. Um, there is one case where he, it's after the war, and he he needed a, I think he's a bricklayer. And so he's looking around and asking around, and someone he knows has a bricklayer that he's willing to sell. And the man comes up to Mount Vernon, and Washington learns that he has a wife and kids, I think, in in the place where he was before, Mm -hmm. and he really doesn't want to be at Mount Vernon. Um, So that means that he might be a frequent runaway, um, you know, to go back and see his family. And Washington talks to him and says that he, um, he, he would like him to come to Mount Vernon and see how he liked it. And they could arrange privately for him to go back to visit his family mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Um, How much of a distance would, would that have been? Do we know? I think it was about 80 miles. 80 miles? So it, he would have had to be gone for several That's days or distance. weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the man could not be reconciled to that, that um, Washington would send him back to the cellar um, and pay him for the amount of time that was rent, pay him rent for the time that the the person had been here at Mount Vernon, and that's actually what they ended up doing because he he really wanted to be closer to his wife and kids. Certainly. Um, yes, <laughs> understandable. Understandably so. Um, yeah. uh, Washington would have to have given permission for anybody on the plantation to marry somebody who lived. Elsewhere, um, and is that in the is that defined by Virginia statutes, or I, is it by social custom? I think it's mostly mostly social custom, but I'll have to check. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a significant proportion of people mm-hmm. at Mount Vernon who are married to people off the plantation, and some of that have may have may have to do with the people on the plantation being related to one another mm-hmm. and um, African-American custom from people who studied uh, this kind of, this aspect of, of life um, generally had taboos about marrying 
cousins, which, you know, in white Virginia didn't make a difference. Right. But. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pathway to social advancement in a lot of cases, <laughs> for white Virginians, certainly. Um, who, who else stands out to you? We, we, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Charlotte. We talked a little bit about Sambo Anderson. Who were some of the really interesting characters that you encountered over the course of your research? And, and, and what, uh, what did their stories help you to understand about slavery here at Mount Vernon? I think last time we might have talked a little bit about Isaac, who was mm. the head carpenter and had been purchased by Washington and marries a, a woman named Kitty who is um, a dairy maid and sometime seamstress. And the thing that stands out most to me, he's, he, there are some excellent stories about him and his relationship with George Washington um, told by Lawrence Lewis, who was George mm. Washington's nephew. Um, some of them are, 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 you know, kind of bad. <laughs> yeah. um, in what sense? In Washington, or, you know, when you look at George Washington, and it, it, it has to do with punishing Isaac. I see. Um, uh, the other thing that's interesting about Isaac is that he and Kitty have nine girls, <laughs> no sons that oh. we know of. And so I uh, just picture him in this very feminine <laughs> environment. And, um, yeah, he <laughs> just that family um, environment is kind of interesting, mm -hmm. and I wish I knew more. Um, the girls ranged in age from their sort of like mid-20s down to about eight and um, in, in age. And so some of them are married and have grandchildren or, you know, have given Kitty and mm -hmm. Isaac grandchildren and, um, you know, others are still being being raised. Um, but the, the marriages of the daughters connect to um, several other farms at Mount Vernon and um, Places beyond, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I want to pick up on a point. You you said that you know Isaac was punished on sometimes. What what kind of punishment would the slaves have to endure sometimes? Um, you know, you know what what did Washington feel he had to do to maintain social control and efficiency on his plantations? So. He would sometimes um, have to sell people away from the plantation. Um, he, he would he he tended to like to start with admonition. Um, so basically, just talking to the person and saying this isn't mm -hmm. isn't right or isn't working, and I want you to stop. And if it doesn't, um, this this or this will happen. So. It could be anything from being demoted or moved from sort of skilled labor or domestic jobs around the house mm -hmm. to doing field work on one of the outlying farms, um, which was... Hard work. It, 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 very hard, hard work. Um, 
but but working in the house can be difficult too because psychologically just because oh, right. you're always under the thumb of right. <laughs> where out, you know when you're working out in the field they're not right on top of you um well, and I remember I, read, reading your book, you mentioned at one point there was an interview with a former enslaved man who mentioned the fact that everyone in the house watched Washington's eye, and he he didn't have to speak with words. A simple look would be sufficient to issue a command, mm-hmm. and that was, in a lot of ways, as you say, psychologically, um, I guess, terrifying what might, might be the right mm-hmm. word to, to use, because... They they recognize that one false step might, you know, uh, compel him or convince him that he needed to administer punishment of some form. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, so he could demote somebody. Mm-hmm. He could um, sell them away if if their behavior doesn't improve. Um, Which might entail the breakup of family, potentially. Mm -hmm. And definitely your friends and Mm -hmm. things like that. your Um, kinship networks that mm -hmm. you formed. And when he's talking about selling somebody, it's usually not, you know, to the farm next door or something, but it's um, to the West Indies, which is a very difficult environment. Uh, Not that being a slave is, you know, ever good, but the, the West Indies was probably one of the worst places to be. Exactly. I mean, those are plantations of essentially factories of death. Right. In the West <laughs> Indies um, and the sugar plantations down there. And um, and then there was physical punishment. Um, so the stories um, we knew from um, an interview or the, the writings of, of Mrs. Henrietta Liston, who is married to um, the British ambassador. British ambassador. Mm-hmm. And they got to know George and Martha Washington uh, during the presidency in Philadelphia. Mrs. Liston was very fond of, of both the Washingtons, and they came to visit here at Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. And in her writings, she talks about how George Washington usually kept his temper under very tight control, uh, but she says that sometimes with his servants it would come out violently, mm-hmm. and um, that that's why they're watching his, keeping an eye on him when they're serving in the house to make sure that they stop whatever it is that's bothering him before he, we get to the explosion part. You know, and there are stories that. Washington's nephew told about George Washington's interaction with Isaac and with um, with other people, where he um, would just erupt, and um, you know Isaac he backhanded him. Um, oh really? And, oh, Washington backhanded Isaac. Like, yeah, yeah, right. Not Isaac doing that. <laughs> say that would, that would yeah. engender something even far worse. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and then there's a story about uh, when the Bowling Green was being constructed in the mid-1780s and the enslaved people in, were walking across the, the grass as a shortcut mm-hmm. instead of having to walk all the way around the Bowling Green 
um, to get to the area of their quarters or where they were going to work or something. And Washington said, no more, you can't do that because it's tearing up the grass. Mm-hmm. And someone walked across the grass and there was a footprint that was in 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 the grass or the dirt there. Mm-hmm. And he, he called everybody out and... They they measured the <laughs> oh, wow. the footprint and found who it matched and that person they said was severely punished. Wow. So we we don't know for sure, but I imagine they might have been whipped. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that happened not a lot, uh, or the evidence is is that it wasn't done a lot um, because if, if it happens all the time, people become sort of inured mm-hmm. to it and you masters who were writing and officers in the army who were writing about physical punishment um, say that it should be rare because it makes more of an impression mm-hmm. that way and so it fits in with that psychological aspect mm-hmm. you were talking about earlier yeah. yeah now Washington also tries to do um, sort of positive reinforcement. So if somebody's doing well, he'll he'll tell them, mm-hmm. and sometimes he'll give them a little extra money at Christmas because they've improved. Um, better quality clothing was mm-hmm. given out, and better quality food to um, certain people. So because they were doing a good job or taking on extra work, and. Um, so he wasn't totally negative all the time. He's, mm-hmm. he's looking for ways that he can positively reinforce the behavior he wants. I see. How, how does he manage the plantation during his presidency? I mean, he, certainly he's away from the war as well, which enormous responsibilities, and that's you know was until recently the longest war the United States had fought in. But uh, during the presidency, you know, he, he is trying to solidify a new national government, uh, dealing with all kinds of uh, international and national needs. Uh, but he's also very active and and still, even from Philadelphia, New York, trying to manage things back home. How it, how do the, his absences change the the enslaved community here? Or did they? Did the enslaved folks feel a sense of greater freedom? Uh, was there? Uh, did they find new opportunities when Washington was away to, you know, form new kinship networks? Or we don't really about the new kinship networks. We don't really know. Um, Washington tried very hard to keep up with what was going on here and required weekly reports from his farm managers based on their um, observations and interviews with the individual overseers and and that sort of thing. Um, He goes home, goes back to Mount Vernon usually at least once a year, often more, and, and spends a month or two at a time Mm -hmm. 
here. Um, it, they they didn't have a twenty four hour news cycle exactly. back then, so no, no like a couple months, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So he's got a good idea of what's going on here. Um, he believes that the slaves, in some ways, are that there's more mis. He'd call they're misbehaving. Mm and misbehavior going on um, in his absence. And when you look at things like the number of missed days at work, um, that goes up when he's not here, um, which suggests that um, maybe... Perhaps the mm -hmm. slave folks are taking advantage of... of less stern and less watchful overseers right. or, or farm managers at that point. And he's concerned about the overseers um, on the individual mm -hmm. farms being sort of caught up in their own business and uh, right. or their own socializing or whatever, and they're not keeping as close an eye on things as mm -hmm. he thinks should happen. Um, Washington very famously in his will um, frees the slaves that he directly owns at Martha's death. Can't do anything about the dower slaves uh, because those are her first husband's estate's property. When does he begin to change his attitudes towards slavery and come to the conclusion at the end of his life that he should put this provision in his will? The change starts during the revolution, and um, it, it's gradual. Um, during the war, he's you know spending. He, he'd been as far north as as Boston um, in the 1750s, but this is the first time he's spending really a lot of time in colonies to the north, mm -hmm. and he sees people. Um, on far farming with hired workers, and he sees um, domestic servants and artisans who are hired, and he's amazed that the like the craftsmen, the carpenters and builders in Philadelphia can put a building up in much less time than it takes mm -hmm. his slaves to do similar jobs. And he's, you know, it, that that would be a good thing, you know. <laughs> and um, so he's got those sorts of influences going on. Um, he has um, young officers who work for him who are committed abolitionists, and these are men like John Lawrence from mm. South Carolina, from um, Alexander Hamilton, who grew up in the West Indies and is, uh, and then lived in New York yeah. for the rest of his life, um, and the Marquis de Lafayette, and he's he's close to all of these young men, mm. um, so I think they were an influence. Um, He's seen black soldiers fighting in his army, and Washington's army is eventually it's, it's integrated. Mm -hmm. uh, there are integrated units, which wouldn't happen again until after the Second World right. War. Um, so it, 
he's got a lot of so incoming. So you're seeing sort of <laughs> an economic argument uh, that wage that labor is actually more productive. And you know, if I, if I remember rightly, Lafayette was had proposed an experiment, right? Where mm-hmm. he was, and William Short actually proposes a similar experiment to Thomas Jefferson um, uh, in the early days of the Republic, I think, as well, to do that sort of mm-hmm. same thing, to sort of prove that. But then also, I think, as you're suggesting, you know, Washington begins to see this as a morally complicated problem. Um, and and how do you, you know, how do you have an integrated army fighting against Great Britain? And, you know, if I remember rightly, Washington wasn't always excited about the fact that he had black soldiers mm-hmm. in the ranks, but nevertheless, they're there. Um, and that, that starts to, I think, as you're saying, create a complication in his mind about the institution of slavery and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Why... So he, he, he does what he does. You know, he, he f- rewrites his will to emancipate his slaves after Martha's death. And then why? And it, but a lot of people are saying the same thing. Jefferson, mm-hmm. you know, says, you know, he abhors slavery and wishes they could get away with it. Madison later participates in the American Colonization Society, uh, you know, the attempt to, quote, you know, repatriate. And I'm making, you know, air quotes here. <laughs> Repatriate uh, the enslaved population to Africa. Uh, never mind the fact that they're all Americans at this point. Why? Why don't they really follow the implications of Washington's actions? Well, at least in Jefferson's case, he has a family to take care of, mm-hmm. and George Washington really doesn't have any. Um, he doesn't have any children of mm-hmm. his own. Um, he r- helped raise Martha's children and grandchildren, um, but they never had any children together. Um, so he doesn't have that pulling at him. Um, Jefferson has a, a large family eventually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Madison didn't have children. Um, he raised a stepson. Um from his wife Dolly, um, I don't know. I th- well, th- these are also men who are a bit younger and live longer into the 19th century, and so they've lived through, I believe, what two sl- slave rebellions mm-hmm. um, in the United States. Um, they've lived through a period when the laws about slaves and what they can do get harsher and harsher. So. You know, when the Washington slave, where the Washington slaves could go into Alexandria, and on Sundays to go to the market, mm-hmm. um, there there were more and more rules about blacks gathering together and forbidding mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, people at Mount Vernon, enslaved people at Mount Vernon, uh, some of them could read and and probably write. Um, there. There are rules put in place about that in 1809, I believe. Right. Um, so it, it's a di- very different um, psychological and um, and legal situation. Yeah, economic and legal mm-hmm. regime that develops. And people criticized Washington for for freeing the slaves from Mount Vernon in the method that he did. So, um, in, in what sense? Uh, 
Some people thought it was dangerous mm -hmm. what he did, just turning people loose, um, which which he didn't because he <laughs> followed the right. law and he continued to take his estate continued to take care of um, elderly slaves and and people who uh, were children and and needed care and education mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. So his estate is looking after people until. Um, the 1830s, mm -hmm. and in the case of Sambo Anderson, he was supposedly the last remaining um, person who'd been freed by Washington, and he was taking care of himself, but as when he was very, very old in the last year of his life, um, he was having trouble taking care of himself, and um, people approached the estate about mm -hmm. looking after him. So... He didn't just let people go, but, but the community around in Virginia was, was highly critical of him. And William Short, who was Thomas Jefferson's secretary, um, felt that he'd done it all wrong and should have had set up sort of a foundation to right. Um, right. slowly Gradual let people go. Mm -hmm. Which is what Washington thought should happen, too, but mm -hmm. legislatively, but it... it it didn't in his lifetime. I think it was probably a disappointment that Virginia didn't mm -hmm. do that. So you've got on the one hand, you know, people like Jefferson who would have said, well, if you emancipate all at once, you're going to have a race war mm -hmm. because there'll be this all, you know, Jefferson says this in notes of State of the Virginia that there's all this <laughs> pent-up hostility that if you emancipate all at once, then uh, former slaves will turn on their masters and it'll be a bloodbath. William Short saying, well, Washington should have done a gradual emancipation, set up a foundation or a, or a, essentially a, a working farm for them to gradually ease into freedom. Uh, but then you, you also, on the flip side, you have people who celebrate the decision like Richard Allen, mm -hmm. um, who you close the book with. Richard Allen, very famously a black minister who founds the AME Church a few years after he writes the eulogy, but he, he writes a very famous eulogy in which he celebrates Washington's actions. And what what did uh, the Reverend Allen believe the implications of Washington's actions were? I think he was hoping that people would follow Washington's example. I think Washington was hoping people would follow his example, too. Certainly. Um, and and what, what more do we need to know? I mean, your, your book takes us up to, uh, you know, kind of that eulogy in, in 1799-1800. Where do we go next? What what more do we need to do to learn the things we don't know about the enslaved community here? I think uh, there's more we could do following people into the 19th century mm -hmm. and, what, and learning what happened to the people who had been here and their descendants. So we know in some cases, but there's a lot more cases that we don't know. Certainly. And um, there is more work that might be done on where they came from in the first right. place. You know, So if Washington's getting someone, three people at a sale at in another county or something, well, what do we know about the people he's buying from and where they might have gotten their slaves so that we can learn more about their backgrounds. Um, 
one of my fellow colleagues with, here was saying that um, there were just all kinds. When she read the book, she was there were all kinds of rabbit holes she wanted to go down, oh, and, and there are uh, there's a room for a lot more research um, in just about every topic. Um, well, there you have it. Um, you know, if there's any budding researchers or historians out there, Mary Thompson has teed you up. <laughs> and, you know, she, Mary, you've written a wonderful book, but, you know, the best books answer questions but raise a lot more. And we're really excited to see, you know, not only the success of this book, but also what are the ways in which people build off of it. And so thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. And we look forward to seeing what you do next. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Our producer and sound engineer is Anthony King. Our theme music, entitled Mount Vernon, was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.